11 a.m., September 28, 1953, Kansas City, Missouri. A taxi pulls up to the French Institute at Notre Dame du Sion, an exclusive private elementary school located in the fashionable Hyde Park section of Kansas City. A respectable-looking 40-ish woman steps out of the cab, asks the driver to wait, and rings the bell at the front door of the school. The French nun in charge of welcoming visitors, Sister Moran, is a kind soul who immediately senses the uneasiness in the woman and lets her in the door. The woman relates that her sister, Mrs. Virginia Greenlease, has just suffered a heart attack. She needs to pick up her six-year-old nephew, Bobby, to go to the hospital. Bobby is fetched from his first grade Latin class. The woman takes his hand. They walk out of the school and get into the waiting cab. Not long after, Mother Marthana, the principal of the school, returns to her office and is told about Mrs. Greenleaf. Concerned, she asks what hospital but Sister Moran is not sure. Mother Marthana calls the Greenlease home and is surprised when Mrs. Greenlease answers the phone herself. How are you feeling, she blurts out. Why, just fine, says Virginia Greenlease. Why do you ask? And so the nightmare begins. Listeners, welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. This is part two of our case entitled Bonnie and Carl. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then you won't know what's going on. So I recommend that you do that. Just in case you don't want to, 
Here's a little recap. This is the case of Bobby Greenlease, age six, and his abduction in Kansas City in 1953. The kidnappers and murderers of little Bobby are Carl Austin Hall and Bonnie Brown Hetty. They are drunk most of the time in our story and very incompetent. However, they have managed to collect a ransom of $600,000 and escape to St. Louis. It's a little over a week since the kidnapping on September 28, 1953. Carl has stashed Bonnie in an apartment and is trying to figure out what to do with her and the ransom money. In the meantime, a shady cab driver, John Hager, a crooked St. Louis cop, Louis Shoulders, and a big-time St. Louis mobster, Joe Costello, have figured out who Carl is and are plotting to get the ransom money away from him. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. We have Carl sitting at the townhouse apartments waiting for his buddy-slash-cab driver to return with a call girl, which he isn't planning to do. The plan is for lieutenant soldiers to arrest Carl for the kidnapping and take him to police headquarters. Just a cop doing his job, right? Somehow, and how this is supposed to happen isn't entirely clear. The ransom money is supposed to find its way out of the apartment and into the hands of Joe Costello. Costello will then use his mob connections to launder the money. At some point, Lieutenant Shoulders and Hager will be paid off for bringing this plum deal to Costello. Here's what happens that night, as far as we know. Lieutenant Shoulders goes to police headquarters to get another police officer to go with him. Randomly, he chooses 25-year-old patrolman Elmer Dolan. They take a squad car and go to the apartment, number 324, at the townhouse apartments. Shoulders tells Dolan who is not involved at all in the plot to get the ransom money. He tells Dolan to knock on the door and say, this is John. Elmer does that, and Carl opens the door. Elmer's in uniform, and he holds a gun on Carl while Shoulder starts poking around the apartment. Carl keeps asking what's going on and trying to act innocent. Be quiet. When I get ready to tell you, I'll tell you. You're under arrest, Shoulders tells him. He pats Carl down and takes his luggage keys and goes into the bedroom to check the closet, which is where Carl still has the ransom money in his luggage. When Carl hears the cop open his luggage, he figures out pretty quickly what's going on. 
Dolan later says he mutters something like, The jig is up. Shoulders comes out of the bedroom and steps out into the corridor for a minute. No doubt to tell Costello and possibly Hager that the money is still there. Then he and Dolan arrest Carl and lead him out of the apartment. Carl will later say he's positive the money was still in the apartment when he was taken to the station. According to everybody, Shoulders locks the apartment before they leave. Shoulders and Dolan take Carl to the Newstead Avenue station in the Central West End. Carl is booked for the kidnapping of Bobby Greenlease. Somehow, somehow, in the meantime, Carl's luggage is brought from the townhouse apartments and locked up at the police station. Well, at least some of it is. When the money is counted, over $300,000 is missing. But we'll talk about that later. When law enforcement starts to interrogate Carl Hall the night of October 6, 1953, he only admits to being part of the kidnapping early on. And honestly, he's stuck there. I mean, how else can he explain all the money in the apartment where they arrested him? He gives Bonnie up pretty quickly, too. And he's really got to do that. Everybody knows there is a woman involved. Interestingly, true to his word, he insists that she was duped by him. He told her Bobby was his son. She had no idea there was going to be a kidnapping or a murder. Well, it's doubtful anybody believes that. Bonnie's arrested the next day. But Carl still won't tell them what's happened to Bobby. And nobody knows Bobby's dead at this point. And this little weasel, oh wait, that's really not fair to weasels. This little creep, Carl Hall, will continue to put the Greenlees family through hell for as long as he thinks he might be able to squirm out of responsibility for all this. There has to be a very special place in hell for people like this. Then, almost comically, Carl invents a third person, he says, is involved in the kidnapping. He even makes up a name, Thomas Marsh, and says that Marsh is a violent child molester and he has tattoos. And Carl even gives a vague description of this fictitious Thomas Marsh. According to Carl, he and Bonnie handed Bobby over to Marsh to keep until the ransom was paid. Then 
Marsh was supposed to let the boy go and meet up with them to split the ransom. Listeners, I can't make this stuff up. In a strange twist, the FBI actually finds a guy with ties to Missouri named Thomas Marsh with a criminal record just like Carl described, and he has tattoos and fits the vague description. They really don't buy Carl's story, but they do try hard to track this Marsh down. However, what happened to Thomas Marsh, the real one, is unknown to this day. It takes some relentless questioning to get Carl to finally admit that he knows Bobby is dead. Although he is in really bad shape by now, going through withdrawal from the alcohol and the drugs, he still tries to blame the murder on the fictitious Thomas Marsh, but the FBI and the police in Kansas City have not been sitting on their hands since Bobby's abduction. They've been investigating 24-7. They're still hoping Bobby might be alive, and they're already all over Bonnie's house in St. Joe. So Carl has to know they're going to find the body and a bunch of other evidence against him and Bonnie. So he makes up one last story. He says Marsh was keeping Bobby in the basement at Bonnie's house. Marsh lost his temper with the child and killed him. Carl admits to burying the body and tells them where to find Bobby. By this time, Carl's given all kinds of stories and contradicted himself and the evidence, but he still refuses to admit full responsibility for Bobby's death. In St. Louis, the best he ever does is say this, quote, I know that I'm going to die and that I am more responsible than anyone else because I planned the kidnapping and it resulted in the death of Bobby Greenlease. Listeners, just reading the words, I can hear the whiny tone in his voice. Bonnie's arrested at the apartment where she's not in very good shape. Carl really clocked her when he punched her in the jaw. Now, that doesn't keep her from drinking and even going out to get something to eat, but um, she's in bad shape. The The injuries on her face are evident in the newspaper pictures. She's very sick, and she starts going through withdrawal. She barely remembers the kidnapping or the aftermath or even how she got to St. Louis. The police pretty much let her sober up. At the police station, Bonnie does show some signs of a conscience. She becomes extremely distraught to the point there's concern she may try to harm herself. They have a female receptionist keep an eye on her. At one point, Bonnie tells the woman, You know, he put his little hand in mine, and he was 
so trusting. The news of Bobby's death is hard to keep quiet. In a perfect world, somebody would have called the Greenlease family before the news got out, but that doesn't happen. There's still a vigil at their house, hoping Bobby will be found alive. Those hopes are dashed when the press gets wind of what's going on in St. Louis. Reporters knock on the door of the Greenlease mansion and ask Bob Letterman if he's heard anything about a news bulletin announcing Bobby has been found dead. He says that he has not heard this. However, a few minutes later, he comes outside to speak to the press. The FBI has informed us that it is true, he said. That is all now. Funeral services for Bobby are held on Friday, October 9th, 1953, in Kansas City. The United Press reports, The Mass of the Angels was sung today for the grieving family of Bobby Greenleaf as the slain child's body lay in a simple gray casket in the sanctuary where he soon would have taken his first communion. With a choir of children's voices responding, the Reverend Herman Koch, pastor of the Whitestone Catholic Church of St. Agnes, intoned the High Mass. For Bobby, the altar was draped in white, not black, as it would have been for an adult. In the church of his faith, he is an angel. When his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Robert C. Greenlease, arrived for the service, it was their first appearance in public since the kidnapping occurred 12 days ago. The church, in which there are seats for 725 people, was overflowing. The 71-year-old father, his wife, their 11-year-old daughter, Virginia Sue, and other members of the family arrived at the crook of the hairpin driveway in two black limousines. Mrs. Greenlee's dressed wholly in black, showed her heavy burden of grief, and her lips quivered as she clung to the arm of her husband, who was ashen-faced, erect, and outwardly composed. A bus arrived with 25 of Bobby's classmates at the Notre Dame de Sion School. On top of the casket, there was a single bouquet of lilies of the valley sent by the Greenleases. There is some legal wrangling over who will try Bonnie and Carl. Parts of the crime occur in Kansas City, St. Joseph, and over in Kansas, but federal authorities ultimately are put in charge of getting justice for Bobby Greenleaf and his family. That makes sense. Bobby is taken across state lines, so it is a federal case. It's not until Monday, October 12th, 1953, that Bonnie and Carl give full and finally honest confessions. Hall sobs hysterically when he finishes. Under heavy guard, the two are transferred from St. Louis back to Kansas City. 
the U.S. attorney in Kansas City quickly convenes a grand jury. He explains that he will try the two together for the kidnapping, not the murder, which under federal law isn't a capital crime. Kidnapping is the federal capital charge. He adds that if for some reason they are not convicted on the federal kidnapping charge, they can be tried on both kidnapping and murder at the state level, both of which they can get the death penalty for. The trial begins Monday, November 16th in 1953. Let's see, that's, oh, I don't know how many days it is, but it's, it's less than two months since the kidnapping. Carl and Bonnie have court-appointed lawyers who are very respected in the legal community. They know they have an impossible task. The absolute most they can hope for is to save their clients from the death penalty. In Carl's case, his attorney has witnesses witnesses testify about his loveless childhood and about how he's a decorated Marine, and they do, they do have friends and people who say nice things about him. They try to paint both the clients as hopeless addicts so, so destroyed by alcohol and drugs that they really didn't understand what they were doing. Poor Sister Moran has to appear and identify Bonnie as the woman who took Bobby from the school. Also, very sadly, both Bobby's parents have to testify. That is agonizing for them. I talked with Hall four times on the telephone, Virginia Greenlee said. I told him we were willing and ready to pay the money. I always asked about Bobby. I asked, when will we have Bobby? Her eyes remained dry as she testified, and her voice never faltered as she answered the questions put to her. But at times, she was almost inaudible. Some spectators gasped when she recounted how Hall assured her that Bobby was alive. When Virginia finishes, the prosecutor asks defense counsel if they have any questions. Voice trembling, one of the defense attorneys says, of course not. I'm just sorry she had to come. On the third day of the trial, the jury gets the verdict. They go off to deliberate at 10.44 a.m. At 11.42 a.m., they return with their verdict. Both defendants have already pled guilty. The question for the jury is whether to impose the death penalty. The answer is yes. Death in the gas chamber for both of them. Bonnie and Carl's death sentences stem from federal charges, but the U.S. government doesn't have an actual death row at this time, so the feds contract with the state of Missouri to carry out the sentences. My guess is um, that Missouri's happy to do that. There's not much sentiment against putting Bonnie and Carl to death in Missouri. It will be the first time a woman 
goes to death in Missouri in the prison's death chamber. So the kidnappers are sent to death row at Missouri State Penitentiary on the banks of the Missouri River near Jefferson City, Missouri. Jeff City is also home to the state capital of Missouri. It's in the middle of the state, about three hours almost due east of the Kansas City area. I've described the Kansas State Prison as grim. The Missouri State Prison is just as grim and even older. It's not an operation anymore, except as a tourist attraction. You can take tours there. I haven't ever done that, but I bet it's fascinating. It's going on my list of stuff to do. Unlike condemned inmates today, people didn't sit on death row long in the first half of the 20th century. Our two murderers are only there about a month. On December 18, 1953, just a few months after little Bobby's murder, they have a hearty last meal of fried chicken. The warden lets Carl come down and eat in the cell across from Bonnie. They're taken to the death house, which is a gas chamber, with a separate viewing area for reporters. Three pool reporters are allowed to be witnesses. One of them, Ward Colwell, writes an account for the Chicago Daily News. I'll read some to give you an idea of his tone. Let's just say he's not overcome with sympathy. Carl Austin Hall and Bonnie Brown Hetty, who tortured little Bobby Greenlease before they killed him, died painlessly Friday in Missouri's gas chamber. The dissolute pair, who committed one of the most monstrous crimes in a generation, went to their death after a full dinner of fried chicken. There had been last sensuous cuddling that left Hall's pale lips blobbed with lipstick. At 11.55 p.m., they were taken to the chamber. They never saw the inside of it. Tight black blindfolds were over their eyes. Three guards strapped the pair into two cast iron chairs set side by side in the chamber. Two burly guards carried in a leaden vat of sulfuric acid the size of a three-gallon bucket. It was exactly midnight now. They set the vat under Hall's chair with a ringing clang that made the spectators jump. In two minutes, they had another vat in place under the woman's chair. The guards left and shut the huge chamber door. The pair who had dug the boy's grave even before they kidnapped him, were awfully alone. The guards began turning the six pressure wheels to seal shut the door. Their muscles stood out and they panted. The witnesses took their place outside the windows that ring the upper half of the chamber. Two prison physicians moved forward to enter minutes and seconds on the execution report. Warren Eadson reached up immediately with his right hand and pulled the lever. At the bang of the pull lever, which dropped powdered cyanide from under the chairs into the acid vats, Mrs. Hetty 
jerked her head back, caught her breath, and held herself rigid. Hall just sat. A puff of bright white smoke popped up in the chamber, and soon the fumes, double the usual volume because of the double execution, swirled throughout the cell. The physician's pens wiggled. Powder released, 12.04 and 30 seconds. Gas strikes face, 12.04 and 31 seconds. Head falls forward. Hall, 12.05. Hetty, 12.05 and 25 seconds. Bonnie Hetty had held her breath 25 seconds. Head falls backward, both, 12.05 and 35 seconds. Apparently unconscious, both, 12.05 and 45 seconds. Muscular movement apparently stopped. Hall, 12.12. Hetty, 12.12 and 20 seconds. Respiration apparently stopped. Hall, 12-12. Hetty, 12-14 and 10 seconds. Okay, listeners, now is when I usually wildly speculate. As far as the kidnapping and the murder, I pretty much believe Bonnie and Carl's accounts of the crime, and what they say is consistent with the evidence found by law enforcement. We can do some what-ifs. Um, what if Sister Moran had done the least bit of checking, like, you know, hey, Bobby, is this your aunt? Do you know this lady? Or something. Then, I guess we wouldn't be telling this story. What if Carl and Bonnie never met? Maybe something else might have happened. Who knows? Um, as far as the whys, um, I, you know, the simple answer is, you know, Carl and Bonnie are just really self-absorbed, greedy people. That's pretty simple. But um, I, can, I can dig a little deeper. I think they're both very lonely people. Um, the only thing they can fill their empty lives with is material possessions. Carl likes fast cars. Bonnie buys fancy clothes all the time. She's a shopaholic. Since that type of thing will never bring them lasting happiness. They drink and do drugs to dull the hopelessness of their lives. Then the more alcohol and drugs, the less they feel about anything. So after years and years of this, Bonnie and Carl are just shells of human beings. They become the kind of people who can kill a six-year-old boy for pure greed? 
I said we'd talk about the ransom money. Now, somehow, half of the money disappears. There is huge fallout from this. What happened to the missing ransom gives us lots of things to speculate about. Obviously, Lieutenant Shoulders and Officer Dolan are the primary suspects. Their story is that they took the briefcase and the luggage out of the apartment when they arrested Carl. They put it in the trunk of the police car and then brought it into the station and put it in a secure locker. Perfect police procedure, right? They have no idea why only half the money is there. Carl must have done something with it. He denies that, and honestly, listeners, he doesn't have any reason to lie about that. There are many people, though, who suspect Carl might have hidden some of the money someplace on the afternoon before he's arrested, the time he was driving around and bought the garbage cans and the shovel and put 80 miles on the odometer. Going against that theory is that the cans and the shovel are pristine and still in the car, but it's possible he hid stashes around St. Louis. At the time, a lot of people believed that and even went out looking for the money. Law enforcement thinks that shoulders arranged for mobsters to get the money in exchange for a payoff. They believe that Costello and possibly Hager took the money from the apartment after Shoulders and Dolan and Hall left. After Dolan and Shoulders dropped Carl off at police headquarters, they rushed back to get the luggage with just half the money in it to take back to the station. Law enforcement is very serious about getting to the bottom of this. J. Edgar Hoover will even get involved. Shoulders and Dolan are eventually forced to resign and even serve time for perjury in the matter. Poor Dolan, he was an honest cop who got dragged into this by Shoulders purely by accident. What terrible luck. Unfortunately, he and his family are threatened by Shoulders and Costello, so he sticks to whatever story they want him to tell. Until years later, after both Shoulders and Costello are dead, then Dolan finally comes clean with what most people already think about what happened. From zero to the bone. In September 1962, the FBI flew Dolan to Washington, where he confessed that Shoulders had given half of the ransom to Costello before the two policemen took Hall to the Newstead Avenue police station. He confirmed that Costello had been the mysterious third man that Hall had seen in the corridor on the night of his arrest at the townhouse. Dolan had lied, as almost everyone involved in the case suspected, because he feared for his and his family's lives. Although he did not accept hush money from Costello, he did take $1,500 from the mobster after he was released from prison because he had been granted his freedom at Christmas time and had a wife and six children to support. 
President Lyndon B. Johnson, at J. Edgar Hoover's urging, pardoned Dolan in 1965. Dolan died in 1973. The missing money was to remain a black mark against the corruption-riddled St. Louis Police Department for years. The FBI met with a similar lack of success in its attempt to find out what happened to the stolen half of the ransom money. Director Hoover assigned Agent Howard Kennedy to work full-time on recovering the money. He spent 15 fruitless years on the assignment. Very little of the money was ever officially recovered, just a very few bills. Personally, I don't think there's any doubt the money was laundered by organized crime, maybe sent to Cuba to be used in casinos or um, put out to traveling carnivals. That was another popular way to get hot money into circulation. I'm not sure listeners that will ever know. There was some fallout from the way Bobby was so easily taken from his school. Many schools already had sign-out procedures in place for that kind of situation. However, the case motivated school districts to be much more careful about who could take children from school. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch did a long story about checkout policies and procedures in the St. Louis school districts at the time. Poor Sister Moran never got over what happened. She blamed herself for many years, eventually returning to France. Robert and Virginia lived to ripe old ages. Robert died at the age of 87 in 1969. Virginia lived on to the age of 91, not dying until 2001. They stayed on in the mansion. However, they were broken by Bobby's death. Their strong Catholic faith helped, but neither really ever recovered. Paul Greenleaf, Bobby's big brother, struggled in the aftermath. He was only 47 when he died. Virginia Sue graduated from Summer Hill and graduated from Mills College in California. She married while she was in college, but it looks like that marriage may not have lasted. I think I found another marriage for her later. Apparently, she had problems with drugs and alcohol that she really, um, really struggled with in in the time after that. Sadly, she's only 43 when she dies in 1984. The family are all buried at Forest Hill Cemetery in Kansas City. The whole family is posted on Find a Grave if you'd like to take a look. It's very interesting. There are a lot of pictures out there. Thanks for listening. I put a lot of links in the show notes if you'd like to know more about the Greenlease kidnapping. 
I'd love for you to subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. It would be wonderful if you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can comment on the cases on the podcast website, Prison City Murders, all one word, dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot net. And you can also email me, prisoncitymurders at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.